You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. It is a sincere pleasure to introduce you to Mitchell Baker, who is the CEO of Mozilla Corporation, but I really love her informal title, which is Chief Lizard Wrangler. Before she was at Mozilla, Mitchell Baker was an attorney at Netscape, and prior to that, general counsel at Sun Microsystems. But to make her story even more interesting, her background is not in technology. She has a degree in Asian studies from UC Berkeley, and then went to Bolt Law School. Without further ado, Mitchell Baker. To start off, really on the Mozilla side, what is Mozilla? Well, the, the quick answer is Mozilla is Firefox, but that's a very limited answer. What Mozilla really is, it's the driving force, or a driving force, for the human experience on the internet. Like, how does each one of us actually interact with the internet? Now, that's pretty abstract, but we do that through very concrete means. We build software, and we build communities of people who build and distribute software. So, we're best known for Firefox. But Firefox is just a portion of the technology and the software that we build. It's a narrow piece of that. And it's also our community and our goals that make up Mozilla are much broader and deeper than Firefox. So you know, Firefox is a great application, and we're very proud of it. But any application, any piece of software, no matter how great, doesn't achieve the leverage that Firefox has. We're approaching 100 million users around the world somewhere between 50 and 100 actual languages, uh, 40 or so of which are tier one languages that rate with English, which is unprecedented. We've got 15% maybe worldwide market share, 25% across Europe, thousands of people literally who are involved in building Firefox, and tens to hundreds and thousands of people who are involved in making it successful. So that is more than a piece of software. You know, Firefox represents a community of people who have a vision for the Internet. And that vision for the Internet encompasses economic value, which we know that commercial engines will drive, but it also encompasses social value and civic value and development for populations of people who are not currently in the economic mainstream. So our vision of the Internet has many facets of which... Uh, creating economic value is one, but only one facet of what the Internet's about. Well, you know, how, how did this happen? It's a, it's a pretty unlikely story. You know, the most surprising thing about Mozilla and Firefox is, is that we exist you know, and that we could be successful. Uh, Bob Sutton, who I think will talk at this gathering next week, uh, in his looking at Mozilla, has said, it's astonishing that we exist, that there's no theory that explains why an organization like Mozilla could exist. And if it did exist, there's no way that we could be successful or have any impact in the world because the way we operate doesn't fit any particular model. And so to take something as different as we are and to see you know, 100 million users and hundreds of thousands of people actually participating in making that happen is at least unusual and maybe unprecedented. So in terms of how and why that happened, uh, you know, th think back for a little bit, maybe to the, to the beginning of the decade, uh, beginning of the century, actually, but, but that's, that's kind of grandiose. So, so the beginning of the decade. And, and anyone who thought about browsers in those days pretty much knew browsers were passe. They were over and done with. 
Netscape had lost, Microsoft had won, browsers weren't relevant, they were some functionality that would end up in an operating system, the average consumer would never know about them and never care about them. And most people, in fact, didn't. Most people clicked on the blue E and thought of that as the internet. And they got, you know, whatever was delivered. And the human side of the internet was stagnant. You know, back on the server side, all sorts of things were happening and all sorts of new capabilities were there. But for the human being, the experience was stagnant at best and deteriorating at worst. So the number of people who suffered from pop-up windows and their computer growing out of control and malware taking over and an experience on the internet that was becoming, for most people, frightening and degrading was enormous. So compare that to today, you know, where the consumer side of the internet is booming. Certainly venture-backed efforts and companies on the consumer side of the internet are enormous right now. The things that people do on the internet are fundamentally different than what people did in 1999, if you hear, you know, remember 1999. So, so things have changed a lot, and the innovation that's happening on the internet today is something different in scope and kind from five or six years ago. Web 2.0 is a pretty common term in the technical mainstream now. Three or four years ago, it was new. No one understood what happens when you get people together. What is social? What is social networking? How can you know, software or the browser actually make these things happen? So since you know, 2004 or so, the internet on the consumer side has changed pretty dramatically. Well, why is that? There's a set of reasons, but one of them is Firefox. One of them is the Mozilla project. You know, he, Tim O'Reilly, who coined the phrase Web 2.0, describes Firefox as the oxygen that makes the system viable. Now, that's a lot to say about a piece of software, but we're not simply a piece of software. We are a piece of software, but we're also a set of people moving the Internet towards a more complete space. But the software is important. Right? Why, why is Firefox important? Well, you know, first, it's a great application uh, for the individual user. But it actually represents more than that. You know, Firefox, or a browser, is the way through which the capabilities of the Internet become apparent to a human being. So our goal at the Mozilla Project is to have the Internet itself be the platform for application development and to have the Internet be open, meaning interoperable and transparent at all levels. And for that to happen, it turns out, the piece of software that a human being touches, i.e. today the browser, is fundamental. And it can be the gatekeeper. And so if you have control over something as prosaic, seemingly, as the browser, you actually have control over what functionality of the Internet is available. And so people make browsers because it helps drive the Internet and Internet development and people to something that's important to them. Netscape made a browser. Originally, it sold it. You know, when it, when it could no longer be sold, the browser was used to drive traffic to Netscape websites. Microsoft makes a browser. That browser drives people into Windows and into Microsoft development tools off the web and into a proprietary system. We make a browser to make the Internet available, to drive people back into the Internet and let the Internet grow as it should and let all sorts of vendors and people and individuals participate in that. So that's why Firefox matters to us. That's why it's our premier product, and that's why we spend so much time and energy on it. And you know, that's why so many people actually use it. But um, that's a big vision. And often people ask, well, how do you go from something as grand or, or, or even grandiose, you know, a vision as that, 
to something very concrete and, and take action and make it happen. Well, our, our history is pretty unlikely. And it's a history of accomplishing what everyone knew was impossible. So by 2000 or 2001 or 2002, the Internet Explorer market share was something like 90, 95, 96% market share. Like no one in their rational mind would ever try and live in that space. Right? We did it because it needed to be done. Right? <laughs> because otherwise you don't get the Internet developing to its possibilities. So, so we set out to do it. Uh, and we've been doing it for many years. The, the Mozilla project started in 1998 as a Netscape launched initiative. And we'd been at it, a number of us, for, for many years. And, and we had been labeled for a long period of time as a failure. When we started, we were the poster child for open source and how great open source was and how effective it would be. But it, it turned out the technology was very hard. And it took us a long time. And so we went through a period of being the poster child for failure which was not nearly as much fun, but uh, you know, left, I think, the project, part of the project's DNA and hopefully its humbleness and approach to people comes out of having been, quote, a failure for a while, you know, and understanding that glamour isn't everything. So we had been working on the Mozilla project while the assets that had been part of Netscape ended up inside of AOL. Back in the late 1990s, AOL bought Netscape. And so they ended up with a bunch of assets. And they ended up with the legal Mozilla assets as well, the Mozilla name, the machines that ran Mozilla, and the bunch of Netscape employees who were still working on the Mozilla browser. And so I think outside of Microsoft, the largest chunk of people working on any browser were at AOL. And in 2003, AOL decided to stop investing in the browser. I mean, the browser was dead. It was a part of the operating system, and nobody knew or cared about the browser. So why did they have this team of people still trying to build one? As part of that uh, ending of their investment, they planned to lay off or redeploy anybody who had anything to do with browsers. And fortunately, Mozilla had enough mindshare at that time that AOL realized just sort of killing it was a mistake. So they went looking for someone who cared about the Mozilla project to take it on, you know, and eventually found us, those of us who had, were, in my case, no longer working for AOL. I was a volunteer. But I had been running the Mozilla project for many years. And uh, so they found us. Took, took a little bit of work, but, but eventually found us and, and organized a spin-out, so-called, of the Mozilla assets away from AOL into the small group of us who were still fundamentally committed to it. So we started in 2003 with $2 million from AOL, maybe 3 quarters of a million dollars from IBM and Sun and, and Mitch Kapor of Lotus fame. And we started with 10 or 11 people. Of that group, one was new, and all of the other 10 had been working in the project for a long time. It's something I've noticed about successful long-term open source projects, is that if you go look at them carefully, you will usually find a set of people who have been there for a long time and are very committed. You know, you, you can name the big open source projects, not only from Apache to Linux to MySQL, but you know, to send mail on the very basis of the internet. If you look around, there's a set of people there. They may do it as employees. They may be a volunteer for a while. They may work somewhere else, but they're still engaged. 
I think that's certainly true of Mozilla, and it's part of the nature of open source. There's something about having leadership based on what you do and influence and reputation and seeing your work and knowing that no one can take it away from you and your employer doesn't own it and it's not going to disappear if you go to another job and it's out in the world that causes people to have an emotional, long-term commitment to the work they do. And that was true of the Mozilla project. So we started with you know, 10 or 11 people. Uh, and, and so that, that is really slim. There was one Firefox developer, right? one Thunderbird developer, one person doing layout, you know, one person doing content. That's all the web standards, <laughs> two people. Right? One person who kept our machines going, you know, one QA person, you know, one architect, one me. That, that's it. That, that was the set of people that we started with. Uh, plus this remarkable community that followed us, you know, in the hundreds, growing to the thousands of people pretty quickly because, the, you know, the idea of what we were trying to do grabs people. Once they understand it and get involved and can see, you can actually have an influence on, say, Firefox and through it the Internet. The number of people who find that appealing and get involved is pretty remarkable. So when we started, it took us 15 months to get Firefox ready to ship. And in those 15 months, we spent a long time trying to think about, well, what do we do when the AOL money runs out? You know, how do we fund ourselves? How do we sustain this effort? How do we actually hire more people? Can we ever hire more people? Are we going to have to hire less people because you know, the money runs out? So, so that, was a pretty, uh, that was the difficult part. You know, the good part was that we could tell Firefox was going to be pretty exciting. Thunderbird came along a little more slowly, but Firefox we knew you know, after six or eight or nine months that, that something big was, would, would happen with it. And in that period, you know, say summer of 2004, before we released it, we came to another really fundamental turning point for us. And it, it's something that, that I think technologists have a lot of trouble with, and that is fundamentally internalizing that you're trying to create something for the general consumer or the citizen, but not a developer. Technologists are typically very bad at this. And we had made our mistakes in the past and produced you know, a pretty good product for very, very technically savvy people that, that never took off. And so it's easy to say and hard to do. And open source projects, I think, find it particularly hard to do because they tend to be very developer-centric. And so the number of people who aren't deep in the technology is even less than elsewhere. And in our case, this came down to very prosaic things like, what does the start page look like? So I'm going to assume most of you are familiar with Firefox. I certainly hope you see it regularly. Uh, but in any case, when you first time you install it, you get a welcome page, welcome to Firefox. But every other time that you start it up, the start page that you see until you change it, you know, it has a Firefox information on the bottom and a search box on the top. Well, that creation of that page was months and months of discussions and and haggling and fighting back and forth about what to do with the start page. Seems very silly, but in fact, it was pretty fundamental to us. Before that, our start page had said something like, hi, welcome to Mozilla, come file a bug, and dropped you right into the front end for our you know, database for how to file bugs. Right? Something that no normal person ever wants to see. <laughs> <laughs> And certainly, it's not a welcoming feeling to this is the internet. But, but that's what we'd always had, because that's what our community was. And so first, we had a long series of discussions to say, that's not appropriate. Well, it's really painful if it's appropriate for you, as it was for our developers, to look up and say, we're going to make a change, and it's going to be less useful to me. 
So that was first. And then we had long, really knocked down, drag out fights about what would the start page look like. And so there was a set of people who thought, oh, it should be a portal. There should be lots of information on there, and we should use that to draw people into Mozilla. And this is your one chance to explain Mozilla to people or to give them 15 links and have news and all sorts of things that people might like on that start page. But, but as is the Mozilla way, we have lots of perspectives. And the number of people who contribute to discussions is pretty high, sometimes very high, and from many, many different viewpoints. And what came out of that discussion, fortunately, you know, was a realization that people want different things. And so it's very hard to design a page that everybody wants or that the majority of people will find useful. And so one person would say, oh, you've got to have a link to the BBC News on that page because everybody wants the BBC News. And somebody else would say, you know, my 14-year-old daughter does not want the BBC News. <laughs> and even if she did, the pictures she would want to see from the BBC are not what you want to see. And, and we went round and round on this for a long time, but, but fortunately the, the value of multiple perspectives sort of succeeded, and we ended up realizing the one thing we know that almost everyone wants is search. And so that's what we put on the start page. And after that, I've heard many people say, oh, you know, it was Google. Google said you had to do this. Google controlled it. And the answer is no. The answer is, even today, if you were trying to find one single thing that maybe 80% of the world uses and would be happy with, what would it be? It's probably search. And it's probably very simple search. So that's what we decided. And then we went out to talk to the search providers, Google, Yahoo, Amazon, you know, the big ones. And, and we found out that our view of these things matched up you know, pretty well, best with Google and, and pretty well with Google. And so we ended up with a start page that's got Google search on it. And we ended up with Google as the default in the search box. So that, that had a couple ramifications. One, people liked it. Two, a lot of people, when they opened up the browser and they saw search, they felt comfortable. And three, it generates a lot of revenue. So the big search providers pay for traffic. Right? You, you can have AdSense or the Yahoo equivalent on your website if you want. And they do the same thing uh, in, in software, although we, we may have been among the first. And so we had another discussion about what does it mean to be an open source public benefit project and generating revenue. Because anytime money comes into the setting, people start to think, oh, either that's great, you know, if you're a venture-backed business and, that, and that's your model, that's wonderful. If you're a nonprofit or an open source project and you start to have revenue or money in the mix, all sorts of questions come up. So we also went back and forth on generating revenue and uh, decided, uh, uh, Mitch Kapor, who was the, then the chairman of the board, and I, and, and I think Brendan are of one mind on this, there was no reason not to have revenue. Right? So fundraising, which is what most nonprofits do, is a long complex process, you spend a lot of time trying to raise money. So to me, the idea of saying the product can generate revenue and we won't take it just seemed absurd. So we ended up with a revenue relationship with the big search providers. And that's really changed the, the dynamic of Firefox pretty fundamentally. That generates between 50 and $60 million a year. And we use that money to fund the Firefox effort, the Mozilla effort, and the vision of the internet that I outlined. So many people wonder about our revenue model. It's very simple. It's ads through search. It comes out of the main search providers. We like that model immensely because our users like it. You know, people often ask, well, how would you ever make money out of a browser? Turns out it's actually not that hard. What's hard is to make money out of a browser in a way that doesn't drive people away. 
So for example, browsers come with bookmarks. Lots of people will pay money to be a bookmark. Lots of people will pay money to have a button on that toolbar so that every time you open Firefox, you see their button. We get these offers all the time. You know, lots of people will pay money to be in the, in the list of search engines right? because it's a distribution channel and people use it. And Firefox users, especially the early adopters, were savvy and would find and use these things. So one of the fundamental aspects of what we do is not to sell off the real estate for revenue. Right? This is why we can do this because we're a nonprofit. Right? Our goal is not to maximize revenue. Our goal is to maximize the extent to which the internet becomes an open platform. So we need revenue to support ourselves. We're glad we have it. You know? But we don't need to continue to accept or auction off various pieces of the browser experience in order to maximize our revenue. And, and that's a pretty fundamental aspect of how we do things. So we shipped Firefox, you know, it sort of took off. Uh, the market share growth was dramatic. The revenue growth was dramatic. You know, we had no idea that it would be that much revenue you know, that quickly. Um, and we ended up, as I've said, uh, you know, with an extremely large user base and with the impact on the internet and the innovation on the client side that was quite dramatic you know, from 2004 till now, plus uh, you know, a fair amount of attention. We also ended up making a taxable organization. The Mozilla Foundation is a nonprofit. All its assets are dedicated to the public benefit. But we do generate this 50 or $60 million a year out of the product. And so we made a taxable subsidiary so that it, it, the revenue flows into the subsidiary because US tax law is very complex. So that's an interesting thing because now we have something called the Mozilla Corporation and it's a taxable company just like any others and uh, i.e. for profit is how people think of it. And that turns out maybe to be a bad word. You know, maybe we shouldn't have called it the Mozilla Corporation because people hear the word and they think all sorts of things that aren't true. So people think, oh, it's a corporation, it's for profit, it makes money, that means it's just like any other corporation. Well, we're not. We're not for the reason I described that we're not trying to maximize revenue. And we're not because we're still a community-based organization. When we looked, something like 30 or 40% of the code that exists in Firefox 2 is created by people who are not employees of any Mozilla organization. So at least a third of that product comes from volunteers. And a third of that product comes from volunteers after we've hired a lot of them. Now, that's a lot of a product. Right? And so we we are utterly dependent on the set of people who include employees but are much broader than employees. They are you know, hundreds of people around the world who literally build Firefox. We couldn't build Firefox ourselves, the employee base. The Mozilla Foundation and the Mozilla Corporation couldn't build it. We couldn't test it. We couldn't localize it into languages. We couldn't design it. And we certainly couldn't distribute it to 100 million people ourselves. It is just not possible. $50 million is sort of irrelevant in that when you look at the amount of money that you know, any other large software company has. There's no way to buy our way into users. And there's no way to buy our way into leverage. That comes about because people get involved and because enough people are using Firefox that they cause changes in behavior and because the innovation that comes out of the Mozilla community through Firefox is, is undeniable. So, um, when did you want me to stop for questions? Not quite yet? Okay.
Okay. So, um, people often, you know, get confused by our organization. And they focus a lot on the Mozilla Foundation or the Mozilla Corporation. But the real truth is our organization is amorphous. It is community. And I hear a lot about community now. I hear a lot about community, and I hear a lot about user-generated content. And what is interesting to me is that we are both of those, but we have no choice. So often I hear people talk about community and user-generated content and trying to control those, or businesses or ventures who want user-generated content, but they want it in a parameter that benefits them. And they're not willing to turn over authority. And one of the things that we've learned through the Mozilla Project is that if you turn over authority and you delegate leadership, people will invest enormous amounts. But if you don't turn over authority and you're just trying to get the work product out of people, you're not going to go anywhere. Or if it's like the Chevy ads, it's going to go someplace you don't want. You know, user-generated contents with all the ads that, that, that were so troublesome to, the, to Chevrolet. So, so I, I have a handle for this, and I call it Open Netscape. Because there was a discussion, you know, in the very early days of saying, well, yeah, people are willing to contribute. And I'm very glad that people are willing to contribute, but I still want to make all the decisions. And I call that the open Netscape model, meaning, gee, it'd be great if people would contribute to, to Netscape's product, but I here at Netscape still want to make all the decisions. That doesn't work. Right, so if you're thinking about user-generated content or a real community or trying to get people engaged in what you're doing, that's the path a lot of people go down. Sure, it's great if my users or my community do things and they bring things to me, but I still need to be able to control everything. Well, that, that's not a good path because you won't get very far. If what you get is positive, you really won't get far. You need to make a space where people contribute and get something back and have something invested and have some authority or some ownership, not in a legal sense, you know, but some ability to actually make a difference. And so we know how to do that, especially in software. Right? And what we're trying to do with Mozilla now is take that knowledge and move it from coding software to a range of other activities. So in software, you know, we built and learned some from the earlier open source projects. And, and we've been an open source software project for almost a decade now. So we know how to do that. The code is divided up into modules. The person with the most expertise who's actually doing anything is the module owner. That's got nothing to do with employment. There's a bunch of people who own, you know, own, have authority for parts of Firefox who aren't employed by anyone necessarily, or we don't care who they're employed by. And those people make all the day-to-day -day decisions about their chunk of code. That includes what code goes in, whether it's good enough, whether it solves a problem you want to solve, whether it's the right time. All of that stuff goes to the expert, and he or she makes the call. You know, and if they get way off track and we start to hear a lot of noise and complaints or the code starts to be bad quality, or you know, then we'll We'll come back to it and see if that's the right person. But anyone who's got the expertise and the interest can actually, and we encourage, to become the authority, meaning you've, you've got real authority in that area of code. And of course, it's all public. You know, We could go to the web now, and we could see who's checking in what today, and what they thought they were doing, and what problems it solved, and what they said about it, and you know, how many days it took them to get a patch that was acceptable to go in. So we know how to do all of that. The question now is both doing that at scale, 
as we grow, and how to take that knowledge and move it to other activities. So marketing is one such activity that we've been working on for a while, actually probably since 2003, 2004. What does open source marketing look like? And how do you take things that are typically done very secretly, like what are your product plans and why do you care about them, and, and how do you make them public, and how do you find people that you can trust, and how do you give them authority? So one of the early examples was something known as the New York Times ad, where someone uh, looked up and said, you know, there should be an ad in the New York Times that Firefox users will take out to tell other people about Firefox. Uh, this was in, in 2004. And so we said, well, that sounds kind of funny, but if you want to try it, go right ahead. And it turned out something like 10,000 people contributed 10 or $20 each to create an ad in the New York Times. So this was completely community-driven. And it was an idea that certainly I thought, you know, I never would have invested in if it had been my decision. But somebody wanted to do it. And so we ended up with a two-page ad in the New York Times. It had 10,000 names in it. Right? It was supposed to be one page, but so many people were interested in Firefox and wanted to be a part of that. You know, we had to get two pages and figure out how to put all the, all the, all the names in. And the only thing that came out of that, it was a message from the marketing group saying, hey, let's do this ad, and you, know, you contribute 10 or 20 bucks, and you'll be part of the ad, and we don't know what it will look like, but we will guarantee you that your name will somehow be part of this ad. Right? And there was a massive explosion. You know, we thought we'd run this campaign for a month and you know, aim for, I don't know, X thousand people, and 10 days later, we had twice that number. Well, who would have thought it? Who could have imagined the things that would happen? So we now have an open marketing area. We're, we're looking at saying, okay, what do you do about um, corporate words, probably PR or events, but it turns out there's a lot of people around the world who want to know about Mozilla, and the number of speaking, you know, requests to speak that, that, that come to me in email, you know, are more than anyone could handle. And so one of the things we're thinking about is there are thousands of people, literally thousands of people around the world who build Firefox or other Mozilla products, and they have a voice. And they can certainly speak. You know, if a request comes in to speak to a users group in Slovenia, I'm not likely to get there. But there's a bunch of people in Slovenia who are working on Firefox and actually building the product. A lot of them could get there. So why aren't they out actually speaking? And how do we say to those people, you know, you're part of Mozilla. You should feel free. You should feel, you know, if you want to go out and talk about Mozilla, I mean, you're actually doing things. Go. One thing that, that uh, is sometimes surprising is, People often want to do things. Sometimes, you know, you think of work or any activity that's structured as being a requirement, you know. Uh, but a lot of times, people want to do things. And what they're looking for is a sense that, yes, a sense of empowerment. You represent Mozilla. Go represent it. And oh, by the way, here's the space where you're the expert, and you should feel free to say whatever you want. Like, why do you participate in Mozilla? What do you do? What does it mean to you? Go. You know, feel free. Don't let us hold you back because, you know, we own the Mozilla logo, for example. I mean, go. And here are some areas that tend to be sensitive. And if you get questions in these areas, people often ask about money, or they ask about Google, or they ask these things, and you're not comfortable answering them. Well, here's some material of what we've said publicly, and here are the people to send those questions to. So, so that's an effort that, that we're working our way through now. And we're also trying to figure out uh, information. You know, it turns out that data about the internet, and internet usage, and people, and what people do is hard to get. Something as simple as basic market share. You know, we see estimates that range dramatically. So, you know, if you read like statistics about the internet, you take them with a grain of salt. 
Uh, at least, or may, maybe more than that, because the market share numbers that we see, you know, vary dramatically. And we know, for example, sometimes there'll be a market share report about Firefox, and we'll know it's wrong. Or we'll know that they took it on a Tuesday, you know, when our usage is either highest or lowest. I mean, it turns out Firefox market share varies. It goes in a curve from weekend to weekday. I think when we started, the weekend usage was higher, suggesting people used it at home. And I think in some countries, it's actually slipped. I mean, sh I mean, switched. So every once in a while, we'll see one of these sensational headlines like Firefox usage drops in country X. And you know, when you go poke at it, it's because they took their number on a Tuesday or a Friday or you know wh whatever it was. So the information that's actually available about internet usage is, is pretty slim. And one of the things that we're trying to figure out is, well, what can, can we help in that? I mean, we don't have a lot of information because we don't track you know our users. We're not a website and. Uh, you know, you know, we don't track your usage very much, but but we do know some things, and, and can we put those in a format that would actually be useful and say to the world, well, here's what we know about how people use the internet, and uh, it may be that we don't have enough data to be helpful on that, but but if we do, you know, kind of putting that out and seeing, well, what do people do with information, right? Like right now, more and more software is becoming open and open source, but information, you know, about what what people do is still pretty private and privatized. So those um, are, are some of the things we're working on. And, and we do everything in, in this way, I guess it's the way that, that Bob thinks might not be possible, but to have this organization where almost everything is open. And uh, open meaning, on the one hand, transparent. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to know, for example, what are we thinking about Firefox 3 <coughs> that will ship later this year, you, know, you can go to our website and you can find it. And you can find the dial-in phone number that says, OK, every Tuesday at 11 o'clock, here's the discussion about this set of features. And if you care about these features, call up and join. Right? So you, you can find all those things if you want to. And we look for openness there's, you know, in a couple, couple ways. One is just can people find information? But more importantly, how to help people who want to do something be able to do that? And those things, as I say, we knew how to do some of them in software. We're learning more. Those are lessons that I think will be uh, interesting well across open source and well outside of Mozilla, both the areas in which we're successful and make some progress and the places where we don't do very well or fail outright. I think will be interesting lessons in how do you actually help people you know, outside of your core get involved and do things. Because more and more of both, especially internet business, but, but e-commerce and, and other business in general is how to involve your consumers, how to get rapid feedback. And that's not always so easy. So we're out trying a lot of things. And some of them work. And sometimes we get no responses. But, but I think those ought to be useful. Uh, and another thing that, that we find in these efforts, or, or maybe this is my projection since I believe it so strongly, is that you know, people are everything in our world. So the user base that we have, as I said, approaching 100 million, is extraordinary because those people did not get Firefox by buying a machine. Those people have Firefox because someone made a decision to get Firefox and put it on that machine. And that's an extraordinary number. You know, 10 million is pretty impressive. But you know, 50, 60, 80, 90, 100 million individual decisions to replace something that's already there with something better is pretty remarkable. And so 
That happens because we start with a development group that's interested and excited, and it expands outward to people who are actually involved. So we try and make our organizations not exist for their own sake, but exist only to make people more effective. So for us, people are everything. You know, we, we have machines, we have infrastructure, but at the heart of it is what, how many people are actually engaged, and how many people both have our vision of an open internet and can find a way to do something about it. And how many people continue to trust that Firefox is a, a step in that direction? Because the number of people I meet who tell me they trust Firefox is remarkable. And many of those people don't know that it's open source. They don't know how we build it. They don't know that we are a nonprofit, but they know somehow they trust Firefox. And my own belief is that because of the way we build it, you know, that, that you're, the, the way you operate affects your end result. I mean, we operate in a very open fashion with many different perspectives where we can't control what people say or think. And the key is to getting close enough to the right path, you know, that enough people are really engaged and active. And that, I think, somehow comes through in the product. I'm not exactly sure how, but, but uh, I feel that way because of the, the people who come to me and describe their trust in this product. So, you know, what do we think about? Well, we think about Firefox, and we think about the next version of Firefox, but, but not for its own sake, right? Just turning out ever more versions of a piece of software uh, is not an ultimate goal. We're, we think about the Internet right now and a couple, couple variations of it. One is there's still some desktop apps where the experience is dramatically better. It's either richer or more polished. And the internet actually could move forward in that direction so that your online applications can be as rich as your desktop applications. That actually is a pretty good fight to make it happen. And it's a fight really at the esoteric technology levels where most consumers won't know, shouldn't know, and may not care. Like what web standards are there? Do the web standards develop quickly enough? Because if they don't, then you have the web, which can't really move forward, but you've got lots of proprietary technologies, which can. Right? And it's a perfectly rational business decision for commercial software companies to try and improve their own technologies and to pull capabilities off the web and into their technology area or their business plan. I mean, it's a great source of revenue. So we should expect them to do that, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But our vision is that there should be an alternative where rich applications are available online, where you don't necessarily need to have PCs, and where you can move around and, and at least have a choice. So, so that is a fight uh, in the sense that many consumers will never understand it. Right? But, but the technology that underlies the application is critical to the internet. So, so we'll be doing a fair amount of that. And also trying to figure out you know, browsers are a bit of an old model. Right? They've been around, you know, 10 or 12 years now or however many it is. So what, what's really next? Some people think, oh, browsers will go away. And they'll say, I can't believe you still think that the browser is where the battle still is or that you still care about that and you're not interested in the platform or video or something else or some other application and you're not building instant messaging and chat applications. Well, you know, the, the piece is the browser's not going away for a while. And the new things, audio and video, maybe they should be in their own applications. But each individual application has very high overhead. By the time people get it and update it, you know, reaching you know, even 10% of the internet is a, is a tough job. So right now, the browser is the closest thing to a universal client that we have for the internet. It needs to change. 
maybe dramatically, maybe not. Uh, but we won't know yet till we try. So that's the next set of questions. Is really how to make that experience, you know, the browser came out of text and, and you know, research. How to make that experience better for the kinds of things that we do right now and at the same time drive the internet towards an open place. And to sort of answer your question, how, how did I end up here? I, um, I, I did. Actually, it wasn't just Asian studies. It was really Chinese studies in an area where that was um, a time when that was really unusual and sort of freakish. And uh, I was probably the only non-Chinese person, I think, in any of my Chinese language classes for, for many years. But I, I've always been interested in how people organize themselves. And if you look, especially some years ago, you know, China has shares, uh, like all of us, certain just human traits, but the methods of self-organization were really quite different. And so that drew me in as soon as I really sort of realized it. Uh, and after that, I went to law school really for the same reason. I, I never had any intention of being a lawyer or working as a lawyer. <laughs> but uh, in the United States here, we organize ourselves by the rule of law, whereas my studies of China, you know, taught me that other societies don't always use the rule of law and have very effective and continuous civilizations. And so this contrast between uh, the rule of law versus some other setting led me, as it turns out, straight into Mozilla, where we organize ourselves in some way that's not clearly understood yet, where there's no exact model for it, where every day when we get up and we say, well, how do we do marketing today? Or how do we help people who don't know about Mozilla learn about it today? And it's not classic marketing, and it's not a corporate structure, and there's these thousands of people around the world who want to participate if it's real for them. How do we do that? Well, I don't know, because it's not a model that other people are following. And so I, I know my background is, is quite odd, but, but to me it makes sense. And we have to find uh, just different perspectives, how to get different perspectives and different people to see enough of the same path to organize in some helpful fashion. I mean, we have this giant community, but communities are notoriously fragile. Right? You know, a good society or a good part of a neighborhood, you know, can change quickly. You've got... And so how do we take people who actually have a vision of something that's sort of abstract and very public benefit on the one hand, you know, what are the possibilities of the Internet, and at the same time something very concrete, like building and shipping software and getting it on people's machines and helping them to use it. How do you combine all of those things? And that's really what I've always focused on at Mozilla. So I think that's plenty. If you... Will you take some questions? Yeah, sure. Do, uh... We're open for questions. Yeah. Given that Microsoft bundles the, the browser into its operating system, until where do you think that the general market share can grow? Uh, because do you expect that at some point you will have, like, Internet Explorer have 90% or something like that? Well, you know, we're, we're not enough organization that if we had 90%, we'd be worried. Excuse me, can I Oh, I'm sorry. The question was, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, the question was, given that IE is bundled as part of the OS, by Microsoft, how far do you think your market share could grow, and could you get to a point like 90%? So I started by saying, you know, if we, if we reached a point like 90% as an organization, we'd probably be concerned. We've had this discussion internally, and, uh, you know, we have pretty high level of faith in ourselves, but 
uh, at that point, at 90%, you don't have the same kind of competitive forces, and, and those are useful. So that's point one. Uh, you know, I don't know what market share we could get to because everyone knew we couldn't possibly get to where we are today. I mean, that was just a given. So is there more room to grow? Yes. Does that depend a bit on whether Microsoft is effective in actually developing a product that's a modern, useful product? Yes. Uh, we, we view the improvement in the Microsoft product as a success for the Mozilla project, right? because we are about, you know, what are the possibilities of the internet? And at least IE7 allows you to do some things now that, that weren't true before. Um, so I think part of that depends on what's the product we build, how much do people understand about what we're doing. Right. And, and the number that we're looking for is enough market share to move the internet towards our vision of openness. That's 15%, great. That's all we need. That's 30%, fine. You know, Certainly, if you were at 90%, you might be well beyond that. So. Uh, sorry, over here. You have supposed to go first. What was your specific role, personally, in uh, Mozilla? What's your job title? Oh, well, I've had many roles. So I'll start at the beginning. Uh, when Mozilla was launched in 1998, I, I was working as a lawyer at Netscape. And I was the lawyer in charge of uh, everything related to technology. So until something was on the price list, it, it was mine. And so that meant source code, anything relating to source code. And so I ended up writing the Mozilla public license that governs the Mozilla project. And at the time, there was the GNU public license and, and the BSD license. So, so I ended up... Uh, being involved in the governance and organization structure of Mozilla when it was founded. A year later, I left the legal department and I went to Mozilla and I joined it full time as its general manager. Uh, you know, and that was possible only because of the technical leader of the project sort of accepting me and saying, yes, I want to work with you and sort of lending me some of his technical authority to, to lead. Uh, and his name is Brendan Ike, he's the creator of JavaScript, not generally well known, but been involved in the fundamental technologies of the web you know, forever and is still the technical leader there. So I joined in 1999, and that's when the title Chief Lizard Wrangler was, was developed because I was managing a project that was not about employment. And any corporate title, director, VP, whatever you could think of would imply a corporate relationship, which, which was not the project. So I, I was the general manager, and I became the spokesperson for the engineers meaning not just the general manager because I was employed by Netscape to do that, but representing the view of the contributors to the project about how it should operate. And that was important because I was laid off from Netscape. And then uh, I continued in that role, which was surprising to some of the Netscape AOL management that after I had left the company and wasn't employed that the title was mine. Usually, you know, when, it, when someone leaves or is laid off, their title's passed on to somebody else and their roles are. So after I was laid off from Netscape, I was the general manager, the chief lizard wrangler of the Mozilla project as a volunteer for a couple of years. Uh, and uh, solely as a volunteer for a while and then partially as a volunteer and partially subsidized in, until 2003. And then I became the chairman, uh, not the chairman, then, then I became the, uh, uh, a board member and the, the president of the Mozilla Foundation. And when we made the corporation, I moved and became the CEO of the Mozilla Corporation. Does that answer it? Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to aim for students, so. <laughs> um, thinking about leaderless organizations, yeah. two parts. How, how do you think about incentivizing 
the project, and, and can you, as Mozilla, and sort of advance technology or um, accomplish goals as fast as a, like a, a strict formal organization like Microsoft or or your theoretical okay. competitor? Okay, let's see if I can re repeat the question, which was, as a leadership organization, how do you incentivize? Right. Okay. As a leaderless organization, how do you incentivize people? Is that right. part one? Right. Okay. So uh, really two answers to that. We are one of the open source projects that w when we delegate authority, we actually mean authority. So that there is a decision maker. So in that sense, I'm, we're not quite as leaderless as you might think. So on technical matters, for example, Brendan has always been the ultimate decision maker when you need one. And if there's something that's not technical about policy or governance or how the project runs or how it operates with a commercial entity who participates, that's been me. Right? So we always have some. Uh, but, but on the broader delegated authority question, we incentivize people by trying to articulate a goal or a vision or a next step that people buy into, and then by giving them the ability to do things. It turns out that's a pretty big incentive. Sometimes people ask, well, why would anybody ever work? I mean, in terms of advancing innovation, is, is this a good well, direction for? For advancing innovation, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I have many things. First of all, we don't pick Microsoft. Well, right. Right, right, OK. So yes, yeah, so in terms of advancing innovation, any organization, or, or most organizations that I know of, once they get uh, stable in some setting, have this question of, how do I advance innovation? So we have some of those ourselves because we have this user base that we need to take care of. But it turns out you know, human ingenuity is well dispersed. Right? And there are a lot of people who are very clever. However it is, they rank on IQ scales, right? I mean, the, just the human species has enormous capabilities. And so what we do is we say, here's a center. That center most people know is Firefox. It's very highly disciplined. If you want to get a piece of code into Firefox so that it ships, that's a big hurdle, right? Because our, our quality stuff has to be very high. Here's the center. It's very tight. But the center has lots of hooks around the edges. Go do things. And so we make Firefox so that for developers, it's a very flexible tool. You can try all sorts of things. And then we set up the infrastructure that says, go try things. And so we don't control it. And so we get enormous amounts of innovation that way. Yes? Turns out that there are very f there aren't a lot of issues where all hundreds or thousands of people want to be involved. So, um, and the code issues in many cases are the easiest, right? Because code has a certain logic and it's got to compile. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff. So, so um, we don't get meetings where hundreds or thousands of people call in. We do in our email and uh, you know online forums get a lot. Uh, it turns out, in many cases, our structure avoids a lot of problems by saying, here's the center, but you do what you want to do over here. So we've actually spent a lot of time and energy, both in the architecture of the product, Firefox, but also in the organization at making other spaces to say, well, if you disagree, you know, you're not going to be in the core here, but here are all the other places where you can act and where we'll help you and support you and provide infrastructure. So that goes a long way. Secondly. Sometimes people just disagree. 
And so the key can't be everybody's got to disagree. Somebody's got to be empowered to make controversial decisions. But the key is to get enough of your really valuable and engaged contributors agreeing enough of the time that they'll say, yeah, I didn't like that decision, but maybe I don't know everything, or that was a really terrible decision, but all the rest are okay, and I'll keep going. So, uh, Is it the mission? Kind of what is it? And then the second phrasing was, what's the long-term strategy? Right. And those are very different, actually, in our world. So, so our long-term goal, what's the five- or ten-year goal? Right. It's a vision of the Internet. Right. It's not a product vision at all, unless you treat the Internet itself as a product. It's, what is the Internet? It's open, and it's interoperable. That means not just that I can change my operating system, but I, I can change my applications, I can change the portals, I can change the services. It's portable meaning my data and the things that relate to me and my identity and the work that I've created and my photos and the combination of my photos with my music. You know, all of those things are mine. They're, they're portable. They're not locked up in, in some other place. It's decentralized, meaning people can participate everywhere, not just here in Silicon Valley, but all over, and that your actions can be decentralized. You can deal with your photos and your friends in one place, and you can deal with your music and, you know, things in various different places. And um, that it's participatory, that the Internet doesn't become a place where each one of us gets what's served up, either on the machine we buy or by some great service, and that's it. Right? Many times, so, so we're not always consumers. Sometimes it's great to be a consumer. If, if what someone gives you and it's free and it's great, well, that's wonderful. But, but that when we want to, we can participate. Right? So it's participatory. That's the long-term vision of Mozilla. If that happens through Firefox, great. That's our leverage today. If that happens through some other product, great. Right. That's what we want to see happen. So what's the tipping point for that? Um, the tipping point, I would say, is when the you know, technologies of, of the Internet, what, what's possible over the Internet, are competitive both with desktop and with proprietary technologies. Right. Once that tips, then... Uh, you know, pe people actually have, have a choice, and there you are. Yes? Excuse me, I didn't hear that. Oh, so that's not a question for me, actually, for today. Did you? Can I ask one question? So how many people show up to work every day? How many people are actually in the core group who, you know, walk in the office? Well, showing up to work every day versus being employed at the office are very different. Um, <laughs> you would be amazed at how many volunteers show up to work every day. Yeah, and especially, I'll, I'll go off a little detour here, especially the localizers. So, so we have a pretty disciplined process, and when we go to ship, it's still chaotic, you know, <laughs> getting your product out the door. And so we shipped Firefox 2 in 37 languages on the same day. Microsoft shipped IE in one, plus some language packs. So that's 37 languages, three platforms. You, know, you, you can multiply it out. That's an astonishing burden. Each one of those has to be not only created and built and compiled and checked and QA'd. Right? And so the localization teams who do that, 
are under enormous pressure. They live in our source tree. They have to live with our QA. They're in time zones all around the world. Our build teams here in California. So that means there are hundreds of people who are up, whatever amount of time it takes, to be able to respond. When we say, here's a problem with the build, or did you do this, or QA wants to know X, those hundreds of people are up. You know, they'll be up all day. They'll, they'll do whatever they need to do. So they are showing up for work in a very serious way, totally unrelated to employment. So that's the first thing. But, but your other question, we are coming up on about 100 full-time equivalents worldwide, of which maybe half are around here. And of those, it depends. If it's in the morning, there's no one there. You know, if it's like 6 or 7 at night, then there's a lot. Thank you yep. so much. Thank you. Just a minute of announcements, but first, on behalf